Welcome to Get Real, Talking Mental Health and Disability. I'm Emily Webb. This episode is our 22nd in our lived experience series, where we are speaking with some remarkable people who are sharing their stories in a way that might help other people in need of support. I'm joined by Irma365 CEO Carenza Louis-Smith, who will be co-hosting this episode. And a listener note before we start. The conversations on this podcast contain discussions of mental health, including trauma, post-traumatic stress and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you are affected by anything discussed in these episodes, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you're outside Australia, please contact your country-specific mental health helplines or services. We'll put details in our show notes for each episode. And please do talk to your regular medical provider about any questions you have that may arise for you from anything you hear in our episodes. Something we're pretty proud of with Get Real Podcast is that we host conversations that are fearless and frank. We hear from all sorts of people with fascinating lived experience and this episode's guest is no exception. We're talking to Dr. Fred Moss, a psychiatrist of more than 30 years who is based in California. He's consulted with thousands of patients but also with other medical professionals, prisons, nursing homes, drug and alcohol rehabilitation centres, shelters and more. He also has extensive experience as an expert witness for court cases. Dr Fred calls himself an undiagnosing psychiatrist and we'll explore what this means with him in this conversation because he has strong views on the traditional psychiatric model and medication. He does not prescribe medication as part of his practice and makes clear his personal reasons for this. You'll hear Dr Fred explain that his practice centres on conversation, communication, creativity and deep human connection as a tool to help people live their best lives possible. Fred says his work and vision that he's branded Welcome to Humanity is that each and every person will know that their voice is heard, that who they are and what they do matters. Now, people take psychiatric medications for a variety of conditions and for varying lengths of time sometimes indefinitely, so it is not unusual for some people to consider coming off their medication, especially if they are feeling better or the side effects are making life difficult. Ultimately, the decision to stop taking psychiatric medication is a personal choice involving a process weighing up the risks and benefits for each individual. We would urge anyone considering this to talk with their doctor and treating practitioners as part of that process. Welcome Fred, it's great to have you on Get Real. Oh, thank you. It's really fabulous to be here from across the big uh, the big pond, and it's uh, an opportunity to really take on this whole idea of mental health on a global scale. That is awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Fred, because not only are you a psychiatrist with maybe you know more than three decades worth of experience, I think it might be fair to say you're a bit of a disruptor because you've been challenging the status quo of the profession and how mental health has been traditionally treated by your peers. And let's also say the system. I'm sure there's some similarities between what's happening in the United States and what's happening here in Australia. And I'd like to explore those a bit with you as we get to chat in this next 45 minutes. But first of all, can you just tell us a bit about how your understanding of mental health has evolved over those 30 years? My life has been really 
committed and dedicated to the whole idea of communication being at the center of all human interactions. And, I, you know, that goes without saying, and we tend to really gloss over that when we say something so large. But the truth is, without communication, we don't get anything done. And with communication, everything we do can get done. And the whole idea of communication, effective communication and connection being at the heart of all healing is something that came to me long before I decided to be a psychiatrist. Now, when I look back at my life, I think I was earmarked to be in mental health and be a psychiatrist from the very moment that I arrived here on Earth. Uh, I had uh, two brothers and a, a pair of parents who were struggling with a fair amount of disarray and chaos when I arrived. And I think they were waiting for me and basically, you know, pinning me with the job of being a communicator and a, a bundle of joy and to bring connection to a family that was really ready to have little Freddie bring that level of, of uh, peace and joy to them. So and I did so, I think, primarily through communication. Now, the truth is communication, connection, creativity and conversation really are at the heart of all healing. And I knew that as a child and I knew that growing up and I wanted to be someone who was a master of communication. So with each level that I grew up in the educational system, the conventional education system, I was hoping that I would learn how to be a master communicator. So junior high and then high school and then college. And all of them were very, very disappointing. So I eventually just dropped out of college. And I came home and told my mom that I'm never going back to college again. This was the second time that I had dropped out. And she's like, okay, that's no problem, but you have to get a job. You know, moms you moms say stuff like that. You have to get a job. So I had to get a job, you know. She got me an application at a state mental health facility working with adolescent boys. And really, although I was only planning to stay on that job for a few weeks, uh, just long enough to get enough money to buy a car and then go driving around the country to figure out what my life is about, I ended up staying there for a lot longer than that, for about four, five years. And I liked that job because it was an opportunity for me to communicate with these people. You know, they were people. They weren't kids or children or they weren't mental illness patients or anything. They were just people living in there and needing to communicate with people, you know, with other people like we all do. So communicating with these human beings who are six or seven years younger than me, and I really noticed that I could cause healing by sourcing being really authentic listening to them, for them. And that in, in the meantime, they were sourcing my healing by listening to me and recreating with me. So we were connecting and creating healing that was extraordinary. And I, I learned to actually really love and respect that job. But the thing I hated about that job was the way psychiatrists, of all people, were taking care of the kids there. I could not stand it. It was atrocious. It was barbaric, basically. We would call the psychiatrist and let them know that Johnny was up too late or that Jimmy and Tawny had gotten into a fight or something. And the doctor would come, take the chart, take out his powerful pen, and then write an order for some sort of sedative medication. Then we'd have to hold Johnny down and give him an injection of this. And if he was, if Johnny was like out of his misery and quiet for the next 12 or 24 hours, we called that a success. And to me, that was just like a brutality, straight brutality. And I could not tolerate it. It was a good reason to eventually leave the job. But it really what I really wanted to do was go into psychiatry because I knew it was a communication field and that I could be a master of psychiatry on the top of the mountain of a field that was built in communication. So back to school, I went for the third time. And while I was uh, while I was studying, while I was working with these kids and 
with the sole intention of somehow meandering my way all the way to psychiatry. And so over the next 13 years, that's what I did and um, went back to school to and got, you know, accepted at a great American medical school at Northwestern University and then got my residency and my child and adolescent boards and uh, a child and adolescent, I should say, fellowship and began to work. But in the meantime, there was a drug introduced to the world and it really changed the world as much as anything that has been happening here recently. We all know that drug now, we consider it to just be a mainstay. But in 1987, the drug Prozac was introduced to the world and that drug totally altered the way psychiatry was seen by everyone everywhere. It was on the cover of Newsweek and the cover of Time, a big picture of that green and white pill. It was thought at that from that moment forward that psychiatry no longer was a communication field. It actually became a field in which we altered chemical imbalances by uh, by somehow diagnosing displeasure or uncomfortable experiences as being pathological. And when we did that, like if you felt anxious, there was something wrong with you. If you felt depressed, there was something wrong with you. If you felt confused, there was something wrong with you. If you felt afraid, there was something wrong with you. It's like blaming a log for burning in a fire. I mean, it's like, what do you mean there's something wrong with you? It's like part of the human experience. I mean, all these things are part of the human experience. But there I was having earned 13 years or 26 years of schooling. And there I was a really bona fide American doctor having gone to a great medical school. There I was, you know, with a customer population that really wanted to get this new great treatment for their particular diagnosis, which I didn't even think was a diagnosis and let alone needed treatment. And there I was becoming an expert in the exact thing I hated when I left the state hospital. Now I was writing tens of thousands of prescriptions for kids, for adults, for geriatric patients, for homeless shelters, for drug units, for partial hospitals, for orphanages, for later on, you know, uh, prisons and jails. And you might guess that each time I wrote a prescription, my soul sacrificed just a bit, sometimes more than small amounts, sometimes very large amounts, ripping me in duplicity. Because I really, really, really didn't think there was anything wrong with these people. I really didn't, even though they knew there was and their family knew there was and other doctors knew they were. And I was like, dude, he's just he's just trying to live life like any of us. We don't know what the hell we're doing and neither does he. And it's okay. It's like, why do we think that we can call him abnormal? But the medicines and the diagnoses actually did create their own level of abnormality. So once you agree that you have a diagnosis and you begin some form of medication or treatment of any sort, including psychotherapy, you now are being supported in the notion that there's something wrong with you, that there's a disease, that there's a problem, that you're afflicted, that you're affected, that you're deficient. You now know that and the world around you knows that and everyone knows that and you live from that angle. So now here I am buzzing slowly through my career of a 30 years, 30 years as a psychiatrist, by the way, 42 years in mental health, because I took that job in January 5th, 1980 as a child care worker. What you're really looking at here, if you haven't figured it out, is just a glorified child care worker who happened to pick off a doctor's degree on the way up. But really, I'm the same guy who came home and told my mom, I'm not going back to college. That's me right here, right now. I just went back to college so I could get some shit done, but it didn't actually work the way I wanted it to all the way through. However, really, what ended up happening is I ended up working in every single corner of the United States that I could work, not only physically, but in every single field inside of psychiatry, really searching 
desperately searching for a subspecialty where I could actually use communication and connection and where my heart wouldn't be torn every day by diagnosing and medicating people. So my resume is awesome. I have like a killer resume because I've worked everywhere and I've really been a leader in every field that I know of inside of psychiatry. And that's because I quit the last job on all of them. That's why I have such a great resume, because I couldn't handle the last job I had. So, you know, I usually quit in good standing. I'm not saying that, but it was always just searching for somewhere where I could, find, you know, finally put my stake in the ground. I think it would be said at the start, you know, clearly you've been a bit of a disruptor. You know, that's a very different way of thinking, you know, and you certainly talk about calling yourself the undiagnosing. I'm looking at my notes here, an undiagnosing psychiatrist. Now, I imagine that's fairly rare or unusual in the profession. Have you found that? And I, and I want to sort of share some of my own lived experience. I remember being in my early 20s and being diagnosed Prozac for the very first time and choosing no, thinking, actually, I don't want to be medicated. The things that you're talking about now resonated really strongly with me. Actually, I think there's a different way. And I think for some people, there clearly can be. And certainly, I manage my mental health really, really well without any kind of medications at all. And I'm, that's really what you're talking about, in, which is quite unusual in your profession. Yeah, totally unusual. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody except me who calls himself an undiagnosing psychiatrist. I never met anybody who says that. Now, what ended up happening is I went through a lot of changes. I started taking people off their medicine in 2006. You know, doctors aren't usually taught how to do that. We're taught how to add, increase, or change medicines. But even if things get worse when you're on medicine, that just means that your condition got worse. So we need to either add more medicines, change your medicines, or increase the dose of your medicine. I started taking uh, people off medicine, some of my lower risk patients in 2006, and lo and behold, they all got better, every one of them, way better. Not just like a little better, not like mar not like I had to do special tests to see if they were better. It was like, oh, you're way better. Yep, it's like, oh, what are we gonna do with that? And initially, I was really angry with the medicines. You know, I thought that it was like the big pharma and the industry and, you know, bad, bad, bad. I started realizing that being mad at, at, uh, at the producers of the medicine was kind of a, a, a fruitless way to go. Eventually, I got to the idea that really, to be honest, the problem is in the whole notion of diagnosing. So when I finally started getting that diagnosing was the issue, I decided that I no longer in good conscience could diagnose anyone. I don't know how to live their life any better than you do or than they do. What makes me think I know how to do this stuff? I don't, I have no idea what's coming around the corner and neither do you. Yeah, Fred, it's clear that you're passionate and you're an advocate. You've been an advocate from the start when you started working with those boys and talking Before with that. them. Yeah. yeah. What I found really interesting when I was researching you is you do work as an expert witness in court hearings and cases on behalf of people who have been harmed in some way by the, the psychiatric and medical system, like malpractice cases. I'd love to know more about this work and how did you come to do this? And are there any cases that significant ones where there's been a really big difference made? Because we know that there can be harm done. Yeah. There definitely can be harm done, number one. Number two, being in a hospital lots of times over several years does not confirm that there's something wrong with you. Even if you're totally messed up, 
even if you've got tremors and you're, you know, trying to kill yourself often and hearing voices and all that, that still does not confirm that there's something base wrong with you. Now, what's really, really interesting here is that if you get a load full of those treatments over time, in fact, things do get worse, you know, so that hospitalizations breed further hospitalizations. Institutionalization breeds further institutionalization. Medications breed further medications. Diagnoses breed further diagnoses. So how did I get to um, a forensic work or how did I get to being an expert, an expert witness? I've been around the block a few times, and the, you know, a few a few years ago, before my mom passed away, same mom who told me that I had to get a job. You know, she said, "You should probably do forensic work. You you know way too much about this field not to be actually being there on the back edge and making a difference in precedent setting, or making a difference in how institutions or hospitals or nursing homes of of any type might be affecting." Patients. So I take both sides, by the way. I don't always take a plaintiff side. I also sometimes take defendant side because there are things that are some, you know, it can be abused in both directions. But I'm really good at looking over the top of a case and seeing what really might have happened or what didn't happen. I, more often than not, and that's when you point to a case of uh, my greatest memory, there was a 14 year old down in Texas. This is a really interesting case because I got the case and evaluated it, wrote a report. And what happened is, you know, mom called up the doctor and told, said that the daughter was depressed. And the doctor just kind of flippantly started none other than than uh, antidepressant. And then a couple months later, they got a refill. And then a couple months later that they got a refill with no real examination or exploration of what the girl was really going through at any time. So there's no record really of what the girl was going through. They're just asking mom and the mom saying the girl's depressed and they get more meds. And then boom, one day she gets caught, you know, she gets seen with an empty bottle next to her and she's dead. And it's like, okay, what happened there? And what happened there is called, what I ended up calling it was an error of omission, meaning nobody did anything that might've altered the course of that particular treatment. So we could say she was quietly depressed if we want, or you could say that she was mentally ill because she wouldn't have killed herself if we, if you want. But we don't know what we're talking about because we never even interviewed her to figure out what's going on with her boyfriend, with the relationship with her mom, with the relationship with school, with the relationship with her friends. Like what's really going on that might've at least given us a clue on how to hold her hand or how to be with her in any kind of support in the world of communication that might have offered some magical healing. We won that case, or the case got we won. I, I'm, I don't really represent the attorneys. My the attorney that that hired me to retain me won that case, and it was a you know multi million dollar award that was uh, that was given on that case. And a new set of precedents was set in the state of, of Texas by my testimony, and that was that errors of omission can be submitted as evidence. So the idea, you know, it isn't what they did, it's what they didn't do that is what created this case. And I have run a bunch of my defenses now off of that errors of omission. When people say, well, what would you have done if you were a doctor? It's like, I have no idea because we don't even know what this whole case was about. And that is an adequate defense inside of the court to at least twist the ears of a judge or a jury who's looking at, you know, what really occurred. In these really often super unfortunate outcomes, super unfortunate. So, Fred, your 
what what I'm sort of really hear you saying is that uh, you know just medicate somebody alone is irresponsible, you know, and I'm I'm hearing you really say powerfully a really powerful message that actually therapy talking about things communication everything that you said right at the start master communicator being able to talk explore express what's happening and going on is a critical part of any type of you know inverted commas treatment for mental health presentations Mm -hmm. well i'm going to qualify that a little bit i could certainly roll with that answer and just confirm what you said but there's one thing you said i want to qualify and that is ongoing treatment also has the same circumstance in that it perpetuates the power gradient between the therapist and the patient. So that as if I have something that you don't have and, you know, I'm mentally healthy and you are not. And how do I know that? Because I'm the one who's allowed to diagnose you as being wrong or bad or defective. And when we go to therapy, it's, it's, if it can be misused, it's not, you know, I think therapy is fabulous if it's understood that the power gradient has to be either temporary or eliminated. That maybe really the power gradient is towards the patient. But, you know, if all a lot of therapists, for instance, they just confirm what the, the fears and concerns of the patient or the client. And then they get loved by the client. And then the relationship goes on for years and years and years, like a hired one directional friend. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is resonating with the human experience of another person. And you actually don't have to have a flipping degree to get that done at all, at all. What a degree offers more than anything is the opportunity to have multiple practices in the field. But learning this stuff in school doesn't make you that much better than just the average schmo on the streets. It just doesn't. I get it. It gets you whatever you get and you get your good grades and you get your good diploma and you get your good uh, uh, position in the world. But what you learn in school isn't what helps people. What helps people is resonating and deep and real radical listening, being, you know, resonating and being with another person so that they feel heard because each and every one of us really wants to be heard more than anything else. And that's where healing and love emanates from. So Fred, I'm really interested in, you're talking a lot about stigma and discrimination here and, um, you know, the power of having having that pen and being able to diagnose someone and that how society sees that as dysfunctional or bad. And, you know, what if we flip that on its head and, and we talked more about mental illness as being normal? I mean, certainly in Australia, we know that in our lifetimes, one in every single two of us will experience um, a mental illness in, in their lifetime. Is, is that part of changing some of the conversation around mental illness? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, you know, we can call mental illness normal, but I want to know about the one or two uh, who didn't experience mental illness. That's really super interesting because I want to know who is audacious enough to actually say that they don't have something that someone else has, that they have not been like blown away depressed or blown away anxious or blown away confused or blown away afraid or blown away sleepless or blown away, uh, you know, run by your even your voices in your head. I want to know who's walking around telling you and telling us that they've been okay their whole life because they're not. They're not any more okay than anyone else. So yes, indeed, that's what the Welcome to Humanity fundamentals are. That's the foundation of Welcome to Humanity. It's now become very self-explanatory. When I first picked up the brand name, it wasn't so obvious, but I think right now it's very obvious. It really is like with the eyebrows raised, it's like, 
WTH, dude. Like, <laughs> like you know, like WTH, really. And, you know, of course it runs with WTF, but but that's a whole different story. The WTH is about embracing every aspect of the human experience as being exquisite in and of itself, like in its own right, including the most heinous, intolerable, painful suffering out there as being what's here to be experienced in this short lifetime that we have. Like the, I'm not saying that it's as pleasant to be miserable as it is to be comfortable. And I'm definitely not saying it's your fault for being miserable, far from that. What I'm saying is that each and every one of these experiences, painful or not, negative vibration or positive vibration, are exquisite in their own right, in the same way that, you know, sardines and shrimp are in the same field as steak and and potato chips. You know, it's just like they're all just different tastes of this world called of this of this experience called the human life. And so Welcome to Humanity has it that it has it that each and every experience and each and every experience of another person who may indeed be so far out there that they're totally terrifying or totally like non-communicative or whatever, you know, like really getting that each and every experience you're having is uh, just another taste of the smorgasbord of the experiences available in one's lifetime. I'm also curious too, Fred, you talk a lot as well about alternatives to, I guess, traditional methods of treatment. You know, you're, you're talking a lot about some of that and, and you do advocate for finding alternatives to medication as well. Do you think there's still a place for what we might call conventional mental health treatment? Do you think we can see this blended kind of approach where we all have different needs? Do you see the possibility of that blended approach or do you think my way is the only way? No, I definitely don't think my way is the only way, and for sure not that. So there's a day is not going to come in the future where I choose to medicate someone who's not medicated. It's never going to happen again, ever. I want to make that real clear. I will never choose to medicate someone with conventional medicine who has never been medicated before, ever. So I qualify that by saying that if you're already being medicated and you're pretty certain this is as good as it's going to be and this is all you really want and that's what you want more than anything is to be medicated because everybody and you know that it was way worse before the medicine and it got better after the medicine and that's just the way it is and then all I'm left with is to give you your medicine. (laughs) That's it. you know. And so that's the space for conventional psychiatry in that world. I've only seen 40,000 patients, so it's not like I've seen a lot. You know, there's there's seven there's 7.8 billion people on the planet, so 40,000 barely scratches the surface. But after 40,000 patients, I say without question, there will not be another patient who's never been medicated and never been diagnosed who then sees me and gets medication. It's not going to happen. Fred, part of Welcome to Humanity, it's all about communication, about connection, and we're podcasting. You know, Karenza and I love podcasting, you podcast. What is it that you believe about podcasting? You say it's the true way for people to deliver their authentic voice. So I'm really interested in knowing how podcasting is part of helping people to to heal or to live live their lives. Yeah. Well, I don't know about it being the way to do it, but I do know that it's in some ways, it's the last remaining vestige of an unmitigated, unmonitored, uncensored, uncancelable, 
delivery system that goes out to the ears that are ready, eager, willing, and able to listen to the messages that are being broadcast inside of interviews such as this. Depending on how you set, you know, set up your own distribution, whatever level of downloads or algorithms or uh, however many places that you that you uh, broadcast this particular show or any of your shows, you can reach far and wide into the world fairly instantly and, and make a huge difference without being afraid of being canceled or trolled off the market. A lot of uh, what's going on inside the regular social media system is, you know, subject to just deep and total approval. Otherwise, you can lose all of your stuff. So th this last remaining vestige of an explosive Wild West is what we call it, you know, where you can deliver your message to the ears that are interested in hearing it and do so with effectiveness and do so, you know, from the comforts of your own home and actually have powerful conversations that do that, that are not being monitored at the very moment that you're delivering them. The time is urgent. These are challenging times. You know, these are very difficult and challenging times. And if we don't get a handle on how we're gonna get our true voice out there, it could pass us by. It could literally pass us by. We think that this true voice thing is like a rite of passage or something. You know, like we get, like we're gonna have this. But we can see in many places around the country and Ukraine, even Canada and others where um, true voice has been stolen, you know, even in Russia, you know, the Russian public isn't in this war and they don't have any access to the Internet. They once did, you know, and uh, it's time really to to take a stand in the things that really matter to you. And I think that podcasting is among the if not the most obvious way to come on, be a guest, be a podcaster, pick up a microphone, have great conversations and make sure that they're distributed effectively, you know? And that's, I think that's why I love podcasting. Plus it's fun. You get to meet super cool people from around the world. It is a lot of fun. Hey Fred, I'm interested, what's the reaction been to your work from the people, I guess, not only the people that you treat or deliberately choose that way, but also your colleagues and the, the whole kind of profession. How do other psychiatrists see what you're doing and do they support your thinking and your practice? What's the kind of response that you get? Well, that's a good question. People like, like to ask me in every song. So I call myself a recovering psychiatrist. I don't do any conventional psychiatric work anymore. Um, the last people who are going to flip over in this whole thing are actually deeply rooted conventional psychiatrists. And I like them. They're fine. They're great people and everything. It's not my, some of my best friends, you know. But, but the, it would be, in some ways, occupational suicide to learn or agree that maybe what you're doing is not only not helping people, but might often be hurting people, and that you have to stop if you wanna be true to yourself and aligned. You have to stop doing that. You have to find a new way to do that. You have to get connection. The truth is I no longer have very many argumentative conversations with my psychiatric colleagues. I'm not saying anything that controversial. I know I, this has been watered down enough. This has been through enough iterations. I'm not saying anything except stuff we all know. And by the way, if as a psychiatrist, you're treating your people and they are getting the best care that they could possibly ever imagine and they love what you're doing and you love what you're doing and you're really happy about the outcomes of the patients you're seeing, congratulations, please don't change. Please be you. If you got something going on there, then it's working at that level. 
by all means, who cares what I say? Keep doing what you're doing. I'm really fascinated to know, and we ask our guests this, just, you know, about mental health, managing mental health, but what, what in your experience, especially now with the COVID pandemic and we're talking about mental health like never before, what's in your experience the most effective thing to do for ourselves when we feel off kilter or out of balance? So I wrote a book once called The Creative Eight, uh, Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression. And I really think that creativity is an easy one to go to. Um, so even if you take this otherwise wicked weapon that we've already talked about and just. That's good. That's music. It works. It works. It works to be artistic. It works to be musical. It works to dance. It works to sing. It works to be dramatic. It works to, you know do some gardening, some, you know, it works, do some writing, actually create. So the creative eight says that, you know, that, that art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, and gardening are some things that we can do instantly to actually turn up from this off kilter thing that you so Australianly brought forward. And so inside of being off kilter, there is a, also another way to do that. And that is even more effective than more effective than that is helping anybody do anything. Go help anybody do anything. It'll work on 100% of the time. While you're helping another person do something, whatever you thought was in your way isn't in your way anymore. I don't know a more effective way of fixing off kilter than helping somebody, helping anyone do anything. And that could be, you might want to help them come up with musical ideas. Okay, you might want to go sharpen their pencil or walk them across the street or cut their grass or, you know, pick up some groceries for them or anything. When you help another person do something, when you help any of the people do something, off-kilter turns into balanced. Thank you for that, Fred. That was, yeah, I found that fascinating and it's just good to hear these things that reconfirm some of the stuff we kind of know deep down inside, but to hear someone else yeah, say it is helpful. It's funny, right? None of the things I say require like a whole lot of uh, journal reading or, you know, textbook uh, regurgitation. It's really stuff we knew when we were four years old. Mm-hmm. We already know this. this. We already know this. And you know, what's so great. 7.8 billion of us know it. This is inherent in our humanity. We're so afraid to help people or so afraid to be whatever that we end up being, you know, jerks about it. So not everybody does it. And there are people out there who are just, you know, responding to their fears or their anger in certain ways to cause massive damage rather than helping people. But I got to tell you, some of the people where I learned this the most were my prison patients, my prison inmates. So these people, you know, they'd come into after doing some sort of crime, maybe serving life in imprisonment or, you know, multiple years in imprisonment. Once these people start helping people in the prison or start doing stuff for the community, it is amazing the level of rehabilitation that takes place instantaneously. And all of a sudden you are looking at a clear conscience when you're looking at those prisoners. They are the last thing from dangerous and uh And I would, you know, I would hire them to be uh, my own employees. And what about your um, self-care, Fred? What is it that you do around self-care for yourself? 
<laughs> well, I have to say, you know, I have a, I've had a, a full life and these things kind of go in and out. You know, I know what's good for me. I know I should journal or I should meditate or I should go to the gym or I should take a walk in nature or I should drink celery juice or lots of water. I should love my cats and love my wife and I should, you know, say a mantra every morning and I, I some affirmation and go to sleep with a gratitude list. I, I should do all those things. Uh, sometimes a day goes by, I do none of those things. Um, so I, you know, I'm just telling one on myself. These days, one of the things I do that is such a massive return on investment, such a massive return, I was just saying this earlier today, is I take a cold shower every morning. Totally cold, like totally cold, as cold as the shower will go. I know. It's I know. Thank you for getting it. You both got it. I both saw that. So here's the thing. It's uncomfortable for a moment. But just like when you hard boil an egg, you know, when you hard boil an egg and you want to get that shell off the egg, you put it in cold water and it does something that allows that egg to now become alive. What I'm suggesting is a cold shower, 15 seconds, even 15 seconds of a cold shower. I do mine for about three or four minutes now. But a, a, a cold shower is enough to get, this is a it's a hard world out there. No surprise there. It's a hard world to wake up into. And this is like a warrior move that isn't that hard. It's not that hard, I promise. Once you get over that first couple seconds of catching your breath, it's not that hard. You've done lots of things way more difficult than that. In fact, it's very, very refreshing. So I, don't, I haven't gone a day in, I don't know, over, over a year and a half where I've missed a cold shower. Right now, cold shower is my go-to. Okay. I. I'll build myself up to it, but like many things, my back's got to be to the wall before I try some things, but you never know, Fred. I'll let you know. The way you do it is you get into the shower, you start it warm, get yourself all comfy and stuff, you know, get, let it drip on you, enjoy your, your comfort for a few seconds, and then just whip it over to cold after you've been warm for a while. And then it, you know, within about five seconds, it usually just goes down to cold. Then you got to catch your breath for a minute. And then you're in and being in is what created this smile on today. Like, you know, I woke up a little hard today, but it's the same thing. It's like it, that the power that you're seeing me here today right now is part of that. I also I have great I do have a great wife and she serves up really cool food for me. And having a great wife is a good deal. If you if you, you know, we I drink really good and I, I eat really good and you know she takes great care of me. So she, I, I get to be a spokesperson, but. It's been a long, hard ride to get to uh, Alexandra as my wife, and she is she's just phenomenal. And 100% Ukrainian, by the way, which is what's driving the uh, next summit um, that I'm hosting, which is called the We the People Summit, which is the first three words of the American Constitution, uh, We the People. It's really about, it's a 100% fundraising summit where I'm putting together 18 to 24 uh, inspirational influencers who are going to tell us all how we are already influencers in our own right and we can make a difference. Fred, we're coming to the end of the conversation now and it's been so interesting, but any final thoughts before we wrap up? Oh, I mean, I just think what, what, what's really here is to get that some version of this is what looks, this is what life looks like, just like this, when it's perfect. 
can you get that every piece of what's happening right now, every piece, including the fact that it might be over soon, is perfect? Can you get that? Can you play the game towards that? I, I, I it's, it's not because I got it, by the way. I, I'm, not, I'm not here. I, you know, it's not because I know how to do what I'm saying. But every time I say it, there's something like, oh, yeah, that's that's a good one. You can be like, no, it isn't. There's this, that, this, that, this, that, and this that are clearly not perfect. And then I'm like, well, maybe it's perfect that they're not perfect. But in some ways, that's what's here to be had. So I think that would be, I think that's what it would be. And there's, and, and it's now more than ever, it's time to speak your authentic voice. Like, it's silly to pretend to be somebody else so they can so that you can protect the person you really are. Hello, that is so ludicrous. Even if someone likes who you're pretending to be. And by the way, people are going to dislike you either way. You want to be you, you're going to be disliked. You want to be someone else, you're going to be disliked. So get over it. And you might, if you have a choice, be you. I feel like that's the perfect way to... You know, we're co- we've come to the end of the conversation, but I'm sure there's more to, there's a lot to ponder. And I want to thank you for joining us. So thanks, Dr. Fred Moss. And also thanks, Karenza, for co-hosting. You can find out more about Fred at his website, welcometohumanity.net. Fred's podcast is called Welcome to Humanity with Dr. Fred Moss, and it's available on all the usual listening platforms. The details will be in the show notes for this episode. And we want to add this note to listeners. Ultimately, the decision to stop taking psychiatric medication is a personal choice involving a process weighing up the risks and benefits for each individual. If you are thinking about coming off your medication, it's important to approach the process carefully. It is important to understand that safely stopping taking medication is not a quick process. It's so important that you talk to your treating doctor or psychiatrist. It's a good idea to know why you are choosing to stop and how to do this in the safest and most supported way. Being actively involved in your treatment can make a real difference in your recovery. Talking honestly with your doctor or treating practitioner is a big part of that process. If you discuss your concerns and learn about your options, you are much more likely to come up with a plan that works well for you and for the life you want to create, whether that includes the use of medication to manage your symptoms or other means. For our listeners, if you have been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And please do talk to your regular medical provider about any questions you have that may arise for you from anything you hear in our episodes. I'm Emily Webb and you've been listening to Get Real, talking mental health and disability. Join us next time on Get Real for more conversations about mental health and disability. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love you to share Get Real with your friends and networks and subscribe to the show. That way you won't miss an episode. You can also rate and review Get Real on your preferred podcast listening platform. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and look after yourself.